Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states, although today we'll be answering your questions. We're taping this episode in advance so our podcast panelists can have a well-deserved holiday break. On Monday, December 17th at 10.30 a.m., as always, news can happen fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this, although I hope not. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, everybody. Stephanie Armour of the Wall Street Journal. Good morning. And Paige Winfield Cunningham of the Washington Post, back from maternity leave. Welcome back, Paige. Good morning. It's great to be back. So first of all, thank all of you who wrote or messaged uh, your most excellent questions. We couldn't use them all, but we will do this again in a couple of months, I promise. Uh, Here's how we're going to do this. I will read the questions, and we all get a chance to answer them briefly, please, though it may take a bit of time to explain. So let's go to it. Here is question one. It's from Katie Fox, and she wants to know, quote, besides your podcast, what resources, including books and journals, do you recommend people read to build basic knowledge about the U.S. payer system? Joanne, what do, you, what, do you, what do you read? Oh, I read just I read Kaiser Health News' daily summary. I, of course, read everything produced by my enormous staff at Politico. Um, as a really good resource, the Alliance for Health Policy, I think that's their new name. I think they've changed it. They have a yes. ton of resources. Those of us who've been in the field remember the days when we had to print things out and copy things and cut things out and file them, and now we can just go there. Um, so when that's sort of some of the go-tos uh, for journalists. Pointer has some... Um, information, and so does the Association of Healthcare Journalists. Um, Well, of course, I always check out Page, and I always check out Politico. Those are great resources. I also really like Inside CMS, although that is subscription-based, and it is a little bit pricey. Um, And of course, Kaiser Health News is um, always a go-to for me. They have a great morning report that um, I really appreciate. Um, I mean, all of the things these other ladies mentioned, of course, um, Health Affairs, of course, is always publishing interesting things. Um, You should should say what Health Affairs is for people who don't know, although I would hope everybody who listens to this podcast should know. Oh, yeah. It's basically a journal. I mean, what's the best description of it? Health Policy Journal. Health Policy Journal. And and their, their blog is also accessible. Yeah, yeah. And it's very read- Their stuff is very readable, too. It's, like, scholarly, but readable at the same time, I think. Um, but I also like it when I get, like, random health policy books sent to me. I try to fit in reading here and there as, as I have time. But the last book I read was Ezekiel Emanuel's, uh, I think, Seven Practices of, of Transforming Healthcare Systems. I forget the title, but it was a really interesting book. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of great books out there if you have the time for them. And I'm going to take my chance to pitch again the book that I pitched a few weeks ago for uh, uh, for our, our book episode, which is The uh, Social Transformation of American Medicine by Paul Starr, which won the Pulitzer Prize and is a really amazing bit of background for somebody who's kind of new to healthcare. And of course, if anybody just stumbled across us, you should always come back and listen to us because we're just the best. That's right. Um, <laughs> and we're sometimes funny. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> so our next question is about Medicare. It's from Robert Rabel from Detroit, Michigan. He asks, what is the likelihood that Congress will pass legislation to include full dental care in Medicare, say, in the next 10 years? Can we all say that in unison? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very just a, small. Just a lot of laughter on that one, um, I think. I, it is sort of stunning to some, to some degree. There was a Commonwealth study that found 70 percent of 
uh, people with um, dental problems on Medicare did not get their dental care. Um, it, it is really sort of a, a striking gap in coverage. Um, I do think that uh, because of so much concern about um, being fiduciary and, and cautious when it comes to spending in Medicare, it's probably pretty unlikely to see that. Um, I think where the pressure is being pl- applied right now is on CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, because they do have some authority um, to uh, to allow dental care if it's needed for medical procedures, and there's a desire to expand that. I think Families USA, AARP are driving that. But I think that that's where the the strongest pressure point is right now just because of where Congress is at. Joya, why doesn't Medicare cover dental care? It seems so obvious. I I think it's mostly money, but I also think probably in 1965 when Medicare was created, I don't think we, I think we probably thought of it more as a cosmetic thing than a health thing. People live longer than they did then. I mean, now we know it's part of your health. There can be infections. There can be ulcers. There's some studies linking it to heart disease. I mean, I think we now think of, of, of medicine, of dental care as part of basic health care. I'm not sure that was the case in 1965. And there's not a tooth lobby. And also, I think dental care wasn't that expensive in 1965. Right, but there's also something that hasn't been lobbied. The people who need it um, or pretend to be poorer. I, I guess some Medicare Advantage plans do cover it. I they know, do. I know right. a lot They're of them cover vision. Narrow, I think that's right. been a lot of the concern. Yeah. So, so I, I think that it, you know, we're, we're our, our coverage is behind our recognition of the reality, which is not unique to dental care. Okay. Um, our next question, also on the subject of Medicare, is from Molly Gelbert of Washington, D.C. Uh, she asks what CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, does with all the data it collects from health facilities and providers. Uh, she writes, CMS collects an extraordinary amount of data from its various various quality reporting programs. She wants to know not just what the agency does with the data, but whether there's any evidence that quality reporting improves patient outcomes or achieves other policy aims. Stephanie, what do, what do we know about all of this data? Data, what what they do with all of this data that they collect? Well, I, they they do use it in various ways um, to drive performance. For example, at hospitals, um, they do things like uh, uh, readmission rates uh, and use uh, basically use a financial carrot and, and ding those hospitals that are not as good. They set up hospital compare where you can look at some of the ratings for hospitals and for um, nursing homes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is some concerns with the data too. Like I remember interviewing one of the questions on the patient survey that helps drive its performance data was about. Um, basically patient satisfaction. And I remember interviewing the CEO who went undercover to uh, try to figure out what it was like to be a patient. And just the links that they would go to and what they were focusing on were things like um, making the room nice and making making sure the trash was always taken out. And he was talking about how that was diverting from some of the attention to issues that would really affect medical outcomes. I want to call out at this point my uh, colleague Jordan Rao, who uh, basically does nothing except crunch data from CMS and writes some pretty amazing stories about gaps in care and gaps in coverage and and things that I think even sometimes people at CMS don't realize because Jordan has amazing ways to actually manipulate that data. So I think that's an important part of it, too, is that most of Manipulate as an analyze. Yes, as an analyze. Excuse (laughs) me. Like manipulate on a pivot table, not manipulate in terms of coming up with Manipulate in terms of being (laughs) able... 
able to, to figure out what it's showing. I didn't mean manipulate in terms of change it. Just didn't want to leave any ambiguity Thank you. there. <laughs> I appreciate that. And so does Jordan. Um, but I, I think it's, I, you know, one of the one of the important things about all the data that CMS collects is how much of it is publicly available if you have the skills, which I don't, to, to actually extract and then analyze it, which in there. And Jordan is not alone. ProPublica does a lot of stuff with CMS data. Um, there's There are a lot of, we have actually an entire data staff. So it's, um, it, I know it is burdensome for the providers who have to report it, but it is it is definitely useful um, to, to health policy research. Uh, and finally, one more Medicare question. Uh, Aurelia Chathari from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, wants to know about Medicare negotiating pre- prescription drug prices, something we've heard about since the prescription drug bill passed in 2003. She asked, do you have a view on whether Medicare paying less money for prescription drugs would lead to drug companies charging more to private insurers? There's some evidence that when Medicare limits the growth in reimbursement rates, providers push private insurers for bigger increases to make up the difference. Do we think the same phenomenon would play out in the prescription drug space? It's a very good question. Paige, you want to start? Yeah, well, this is a really great question and also a very puzzling question because it's not really been done uh, here in the U.S. And of course, the Trump administration, as most of us have written about, has suggested pegging drug prices to this international index, which would cause a reduction in the prices somewhat, um, but doesn't go nearly as far as like the price setting per se that a lot of Democrats have advocated for. And the price setting that does, that Medicare does for everything pretty much except drugs. Right, exactly. And the VA does. Right, yeah. right. Um, so, I mean, it's hard to say. Like, certainly um, conservatives would probably argue that this would really hurt drug pricing uh, in the commercial space. Um, and and certainly that would be the argument you'd hear from pharma as well. Um, they've already made this type of an argument in just talking about um, their spending on research and development and, and saying that basically because the U.S. is so unique in allowing them to basically set whatever prices they want, that's where they're able to kind of make up the money that would allow them to reinvest into research and development because, of course, they pay much lower prices in other countries. So it's really hard to answer that question because we have such a unique system in the U.S. where we have, yes, a lot of people on Medicare, but a lot of people on on private commercial insurance as well. A couple of things to say about that, though. This is incredibly popular politically. People really like the idea. But the Congressional Budget Office has pointed out that Multiple times. Many times. Under current law, Medicare has to cover all the drugs. So how do you negotiate a really good price on something you have to cover? The VA negotiates prices because they don't cover everything. So that's a whole other set of issues about access and choice of medication. But they can negotiate because they're not covering everything. So they can take the ones they get the best prices for. So, you know, there's the political popularity. There's the CBO skepticism. You know, how can I negotiate with you when I have to have it. So that's right. another thing. Right. If you can't right. say no, you can't negotiate. Right. And if they change and they do negotiate, I mean, I don't know whether, you know, drug company A pay, they charge less for, you know, this drug and Medicare and therefore they charge the commercial uh, sellers more, but the commercial plans more. But I do know that everybody in healthcare, not just the drug companies, what American healthcare does really well is shift costs. So, you know, and you have to sort of get at holistic solutions. So, you know whether a specific drug is cost shifted or whether they make up the costs in other ways basically you know it's like it's always said you know that snake that bulging around thing that moves around american costs so i don't know that this is the panacea that um, politically, it is seen as, and the Democrats yeah, but have pushed it, yeah, for years. Yeah, it's really popular. It's, it's a favorite well, talking makes, point. You know, you can see why people like it. You know, well, I don't, you know, 
you're a big buyer. You have a lot of clout Medicare. You're the biggest buyer around. You know, <laughs> control these prices. It's, it's, it's not that simple. We should make them all study the Part B drugs, uh, <laughs> which I would wish on no one other than the people sitting at this table. Um, while we are talking about drugs, uh, we have a bunch of questions about drug prices. Uh, Althea Loom from Boston wants to know more about pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs, specifically what they do. Are they unique to the U.S., she asks? Have there been policy measures to pro- prohibit or inhibit? PBMs, and if so, what have the repercussions been? Uh, Stephanie? Um, I can tackle this a little bit, but everyone join in. Um, PBMs basically administer prescription drug plans for um, a, a vast number of organizations, whether it be um, commercial plans or um, government programs. They've um, the more than, what is it, 266 million Americans are covered by um, PBM programs. And the general idea behind this is that they are supposed to work to save employers, unions, the government money. And patients. Yes, and patients, because they negotiate a bunch of things, such as rebates, um, and they create, like, select networks of pharmacies. Um, they include some of the big players, are Express Scripts and CVS Health. Um, there have been some concern that they also pad profits um, in a way that hurts consumers, um, that they may charge uh, patients more co-pays than drug costs. And um, in terms of their their spread, they have been spreading into other countries. Express strip, scripts moved into China. Um, there have been a lot of um, analysis that have been done by them in terms of more momentum in uh, various countries in Europe. Uh, so, yeah, I think in France, mm-hmm, I saw France some. was where what I was going to say. Yeah, so I mean, they they are sort of spreading. Um, I think they first moved into China in two thousand and nine. Um, so they are becoming more and more popular from when they first began, which was really just because of a prescription card. Like they first came up with a card. Um, and that's gotten a lot of legislators and lawmakers concerned about whether they're actually working to drive down costs and, and make things more beneficial for uh, consumers as well as the payers. Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, yeah, the theory was they would drive bargains and they would yeah. take a little right. piece well, these, and everybody, it would be a win-win, but it, right. that's not necessarily how it's working out. Well, these PBMs got started in the 80s and it was as a way to basically create price competition between drug makers because the PBMs would negotiate, pick a particular brand name drug and negotiate with the drug maker to bring down, get a lower price and then the drug maker would pay them back a rebate. The problem is the whole system is completely opaque and there's a lack of transparency. People don't know the size of the rebates. Uh, and of course, this has had the effect of pushing up list prices as well because that, that's the incentive for the PBM so that they can get a larger rebate. So um, there's been a lot of talk, especially this year, after sort of years of PBMs operating in pretty much obscurity. Um, the Trump administration has actually put a lot of attention on them, and you saw the president use some pretty harsh language on them when he was rolling out his drug pricing blueprint last spring. Um, he hasn't actually gone as far as a lot of people thought that he would. Um, they haven't gone so far as to, like, ban these drug rebates. Um, but as part of their Medicare Part B proposal last month, they did have a part in there which basically suggested that the co-pays that seniors pay should be based on the lowest negotiated price of the drug rather than the list price uh, as a way of bringing down costs for seniors. So they're trying to kind of get at the problem a little bit. Um, should but mention I, that the, the PBM lobby in Washington is pretty strong, and right. they have been for. But it's I'm, also interesting that I mean, the PBMs are the most opaque thing around. I mean, they were they're just the hardest thing to understand and explain. They're 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 a black box, and yet, it, pharma has been really successful in sort of 
blaming the PBMs. I mean, they've been become these dreaded middlemen. I mean, that's, Trump attacked them as the middlemen. And and they are middlemen, and they are part of this whole crazy cost thing and drug prices that nobody on earth actually understands, not one single person. But it's really interesting how they've become the political scapegoat, in spite, as Julie just pointed out, having a really strong lobby. But they're not the only thing wrong with drug prices or health care costs Although in I find this to be the ultimate Washington fight. The PBMs blame the drug companies. The drug companies blame the PBM. The insurance companies blame basically everybody. I it's mean, the it's, biggest food fight in town. It is. It is a very large. All right. We'll have one more related question. Uh, it's from Pamela Murphy. She's a pediatrician in Phoenix, Arizona. She says, I want to know how good RX works and makes money. I recommend it to my patients without insurance, my friends with large deductibles, understanding it will not go towards their deductible, and for myself to avoid the annoyance of a prior authorization. In some cases, it seems too good to be true. And for people who don't know, good RX is this. It's basically an app um, where you can, you know, look up your drug and they'll give you a coupon. And uh, it it is, um, from, from what I can tell, they're sort of another middleman in this whole thing. And they negotiate. They're like, they're basically a PBM, although they think they work with PBMs. Um, and it's also kind of a black box, although I know... Well, these coupons, and I haven't used a GoodRx one, and maybe Paige or Stephanie is more specifically about GoodRx, but I mean, I have used drug coupons. And basically, they're meaning that my... It's, it's another cost shift, right? My out-of-pocket goes down because I have a coupon. I've said on this uh, podcast before, I have a bee sting allergy. I'm an EpiPen, or as you know, as I joked at the time, my conflict of interest pen, you know, and, and I use a coupon and it saves me a couple of hundred dollars and I need those, you know, hundreds of dollars. And it's a life-threatening thing. I cannot not have one. Um, there's another drug I also had that, you know, it cost $10 with a coupon and 400 without. So, it, but again, it's saving me money. It's saving me an out-of-pocket expense. Good RX is saving people out-of-pocket expenses. Are we really saving money, or is it being shifted to our premiums or somebody else's premiums? And you could talk about equity, and maybe it's fairer that we all share the price of expensive drugs through premiums or whatever. But it's not bringing down the price of drugs. It's bringing down what I pay when I go to the to the drugstore and hand them my credit card. And those are not the same thing. I right. think that's the biggest thing in drug prices that people don't realize that out-of-pocket costs and costs of drugs overall are not one and the same. We might decide as a country that we want to address one first. We might decide there are equitable reasons to do that. We might decide it's the easiest thing to do to get started, but they are not the same thing. There were a bunch of states that wanted to limit people's out-of-pocket spending on drugs, and it's like, but it's like, you're not making the rest of the money go away. Somebody is yeah, going shows, to pay it's, it. It's, it's either somebody else pays or instead of paying it at the drugstore, we're paying it in our insurance premiums. All right. Before we leave drug pricing, anybody else want to put in their two cents? I've not used it. So not now, now I'm inspired to try it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Quite the because answer. it's always like, good wow. to bring down your costs. <laughs> right. but yeah. But I mean, why not? I mean, why yeah. would I pay 600 bucks for something that I can pay 25 for 15 or whatever it was? Right. An and, and Americans love coupons. Right. So it's, it's cheaper for me. Well, I haven't bought an EpiPen recently, so I'm, I have to do that. Right. I have to go print out an, a coupon, by the way. But it's cheaper for me to buy the... And I hear there's the, a new generic. Right. But it was last time I looked, it was cheaper for me to use a coupon to buy the brand name than it was to use the generic. And that's the Hundreds whole... of dollars cheaper. And that is the entire point of the coupons. It's for the brand I mean, name right. to uh, make it. I should just to... never get stung by a bee, but since we cannot guarantee that, right. 
Well, it's I'm winter, keep so printing hopefully. out coupons. <laughs> hopefully, you'll be okay. <laughs> find find a way months. to shift the cost of the bees. Yeah, the, that would the be answer to this yeah, No, bees are endangered. Don't <laughs> right, do that. Right, right. Gotta be nice to bees. <laughs> all right, uh, all right. Now we have a couple of Out questions of costs. <laughs> about current events. <laughs> Chase McGee from Durham, North Carolina, asks what we think was the largest contributor to the significantly lower signups at healthcare.gov this year. I should point out that we don't know exactly what those signups were, but we do know that they were lagging. Um, he asked, "Quote: Was it the lack of an insurance mandate?" fewer navigators, less shopping around, or some other factor. And Chase says, quote, a combination of these factors is an unacceptable answer. I want a smoking gun. Joanne? <laughs> we all laughed at that one because, honey, there's no smoking gun. There's a smoking armament. The, you know, it's all the things you said. It, it's the confusion. It's the outreach. Um, it's it's now, we're, you know, the Texas, we're, lawsuit. the Texas lawsuit that came, the decision came the night. We don't, we're, as we're speaking, we're taping before you're hearing this, we don't know what the ultimate impact of that. We don't know how low enrollment was the last day, but surely that, you know, some people thought, uh oh, no more Obamacare. I can't sign up. There's confusion. The yeah, it could have. That right. People actually right. heard about it on Saturday and were like, oh, no, like, healthcare. I, I was wondering about that <laughs> right. too. Because yeah, there, there were repeal stuff got people to sign up. Right. So I was yeah. wondering, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, the, the, the alternative plans that are available, the short term plans, the AHP, the Association of Health Plans that are coming on board, I mean, they're, they're just. Many, many, many reasons there are there there are smoking guns, but there's a lot of smoking guns. Right. Plus the good economy. You know, right. More, more people. people have, who, yeah. who knows? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and 150,000 people in Virginia signing up for Medicaid. One right. thing I thought was interesting is if you look at like the number of people that visited healthcare.gov that actually enrolled in a plan, that's actually a little bit higher than last year. Um, uh, I think like 28 percent, according to numbers that Protect Our Care gave me, 28 percent of of, of, of of people who actually went to the website and shopped, selected a plan versus a smaller percentage last year, which makes me th- like, which makes sense to me if you consider the plan options, they were better this year. They the were. premiums were better. They had gone down in many areas. So I think for people that vi- that actually visited the website, found were probably happier with what they found than compared to last year, but you just had fewer people visiting the website. Right. And we also don't know, as we're speaking now, because we're, we're speaking before you're, you're hearing us, we don't know the total figures. We don't know the auto-enroll numbers. Right. Um, so, you know, the auto-re-enroll auto numbers. Auto-re-enroll right. numbers. I mean, so as and of now, we're thinking it's around 10% lower than last year, but we do not know. So by the time you listen to this, uh, it could be worse. It could be a little better. But, yeah, there there's lots and lots and lots of reasons, right? I, ranging from a good economy to, you know, two years of efforts by this administration to you know, quite openly committed to undermining the law. There, there's no secret. The, the end of the mandate. I mean, it was it's clearly. I will say they were sending a lot of like email reminders to set, to sign up, and also a lot of text reminders. One of my good friends like texted me on Friday and was like, "How do I get all these texts from healthcare.gov to stop? They're driving me crazy." <laughs> I think they so. sent like 600 million was a number. I think I had it was a crazy amount. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why, like, yeah, I think they have definitely taken steps to reshape the law according to sort of their vision of what they want it to look like. But I wouldn't call it like all out sabotage because there are things they could have done much further than they went. Like they didn't have to send all those reminder emails. They didn't have to send texts. They could have cut the enrollment period. So I, I don't I, I don't I wouldn't go so far as like some of the activist groups have. I would just say that, like, 
they have their criticisms of the Affordable Care Act, and they have sort of their vision of what they think health insurance should look like, and they've been trying to advance that through these association health plans and so forth. And the short-term plans, yeah. yeah. I, I think my, my most popular tweet last week was Seema Verma tweeted, I guess on Friday, it said, you know, know you're all busy with the holidays, but don't forget to sign up for health care. And I retweeted it, pointing out that it was you guys who set the open enrollment to end right before the holidays. So. But in fairness, she did tweet it. You know, we reported yeah. it because yeah. we reported that she wasn't tweeting, and then we reported that she did. And the decision to make shorter enrollment was from the Obama administration. Right, that That's right. It was always yeah. anticipated. Yes. There's there's a lot of there's still a lot of debate about whether this is this is in theory a terrible time of year because people have to pay that first month's premium and it's a bad time. And there's a lot. There was a, a guy from Tennessee who kept lobbying to move it to April when people get their tax yeah, refunds. That's what the tax preparers said. Yeah. Move it to when people are filing their, ta- their yeah, taxes. Yeah. So, but that's all right. We will, I'm sure we will talk about that more. Um, our next question is, uh, and I hope I don't mangle her name, Naomi Haralambakis, who's a brand new PhD from the University of Louisville. Congratulations. Now living here in Washington D.C., wants to know what's going on with fetal tissue research. She says, quote, HHS is currently doing a review. The Trump administration has just posted a ban to the NIH labs to stop procuring any new fetal tissue. This jeopardizes research studies. She writes, what do you think will be the long-term consequences of this? And how can scientists, health policy wonks, and policymakers better communicate why basic research is vital to medicine and public health? I should point out that actually HHS, after temporarily stopping some research from getting more fetal tissue, um, says that it will allow them to procure more tissue. That happened late last week. But still, there's there's stuff going on with fetal tissue research. Stephanie, you've, you've, been, yeah, you've been following well, the, this. The anti-choice um, organizations have really taken this up as their, their kind of thing that they significantly want to see done. And they think that they can get real traction with this administration on. And, and so far, that, that they have been making progress. Like HHS agreed to review the use of fetal tissue from uh, the federal organizations. They want scientists to use other alternatives. They gave, uh, was it a $20 million grant um, to NIH to explore other uh, alternatives to using fetal tissue. Um, at the same time, they had a hearing um, as well on this whole issue. At the same time, you have the science, um, a large number of, of individuals in the science community and medical community who are very concerned because fetal tissue has has ha- had, and they say still continues to have, really important um, scientific reasoning for de- for the developing a number of different things. A lot of from major vaccines, vaccines right, right, were developed using right, fetal yes, tissue. Yes, yes. Um, so I don't think this is anything that's going to resolve quickly. This has actually been a long time debate, but this is really because of what they feel is a more friendly administration, um, really been brought center stage and is suddenly getting a lot more attention than it has in the past. Honestly. And I think it's it's kind of a residual factor from all the emphasis that was on sort of the Planned Parenthood and fetal yes. tissue procurement um, that had occurred with, Congress, with the Congress having this special investigation. So I think this is sort of looking at, okay, here's, here's fetal, what fetal tissue is often used for. How can we kind of clamp down on that and look at other alternatives? And I think there's an interesting historical quirk that, you know, Julie and I were talking about before is that, you know, um, 15 or so years ago, stem cell research was really, really controversial. It took several years through the Bush Bush administration, Bush II, um, to get any kind of federal funding. It was very limited. It was, uh, you know, one sort of not great stem cell line they could use. And it became, and there was a similar debate about can't we use adult stem cells? And the science came down that there are some things you can, you can and should use adult stem cells for, but there were also reasons to do research on, on with with stem, you know, stem fetal cells, stem cells, fetal right. stem cells. And and 
And that was not from abortion. It was a different issue. Um, it's an issue that's gotten very confused and people want to confuse them sometimes intentionally. But then there was a national sort of consensus. We're not fighting about that anymore. We don't have an annual appropriations fight about it. We've just realized, okay, this is a... a, a a vein of science that we should pursue. Fetal tissue research, in contrast, has been going on for years without controversy. There, well, no, there was mean, some there controversy. Was some. I was saying, but yeah. the Reagan years, but I mean, there was a huge controversy. In Bush one, no, it was oh. Bush one, and actually, and it passed it. The Senate allowing fetal tissue research. Um, uh, it's true. It started during it really Reagan, died, yeah. but it it passed like. 86 to, you know, it never something. stopped, right? Uh, it never, no, it, ne- uh, it did stop. Actually, it stopped because, during, you're right, during the Reagan administration, they were there was a sort of a moratorium by default because they created this bioethics board and then they could never agree who should serve on the bioethics board and only the bioethics board could approve the, the, the fetal tissue research. So therefore, there wasn't any. But it hasn't been, I mean, they, they're still talking 20 years but ago. It hasn't been controversial But what I was going to point out is that the, the leaders of the fight, that no, you're right, it hasn't. The leaders of the fight were some of the most most conservative Republicans, some of the most anti-abortion Republicans. Strom Thurmond was one of the leaders for this. So was Orrin Hatch, who's still there, at least right this minute, um, who came out and said that this research is important. And it was, you know, it, these were only elective abortions. It would be tissue that would be um, discarded. And there were all kinds of protections to make sure that people couldn't buy it. And that's what the whole Planned Parenthood sting was about, that you couldn't sell it for a profit. But the idea that this was, I'm surprised that the, the anti-abortion community is bringing back this particular issue because it was passed with such overwhelming bipartisan support back in 1991. Right. And it, has be- it had become a consensus. So right. that's 25, less than 20, you know, almost 30 years ago. So the, but what what's happened here is that they don't speak, of, it, it, it is very related to the Planned Parenthood thing. There's, there's been, the way it's spoken about is, is not everybody. I mean, there's some, there are people who have, you know, there are clearly people who have moral concerns about this, but it is also being spoken about in a way that totally links it back to Planned Parenthood that implies it's a business and it calls it baby parts, baby body parts. And it it's, it's tissue. It's a good talking point for right. them. So it's it's really part of this larger attack on Planned Parenthood. Um, it's a, you know there is a bioethics issue. NIH is looking at it. Francis Collins has certainly said I'm going to look at it. But he's also pointed out quite explicitly you know some of the research that is being done um, on fetal tissue for which we do not currently have an alternative. So you know, this will play out. I don't know how, but, you know, it's not going to go away immediately, but then it'll probably go away. (laughs) I mean, if you study things, it gives you, you know, it's like appointing a commission. That's what Washington does when they don't want to act. So they're going to study it. And in the meantime, it'll probably continue for at least a while. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's pressure to halt it. I remember when Marsha Blackburn headed the fetal tissue committee. Was that two or three years ago, right after the Delighton videos? Right after the Planned Parenthood stuff, right. And they spent a year. and they, Yeah, I think so. And they came out with like this big report and then that was kind of it. Like, yeah. I mean, and but we do think she's likely to become the first Republican woman on judiciary on the Senate side now. And we'll see what what she does there if that, in fact, happens. I'm interested before we, we stop in the second part of the question, though, which is that, you know, what what can sort of we have a we have a, a stake in this, too, to talking about. To be able to communicate about basic research and basic science, I remember covering the Appropriations Committee years ago. Um, that that congressmen would, you know, sort of wring their hands over the idea that, you know, if you're giving to the National Cancer Institute, people get that, or if you're giving to the National Institute of, you know, Diabetes, people get that. But when you're, you know, funding basic research, the public just doesn't understand the importance of basic research and science. 
Well, I think if you say that, I mean, was it the polio vaccine that was created mm-hmm. through fetal tissue? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think people are glad that we got rid of polio. I, there's some Zika research going on, which is out of the headlines, but there's still families that are affected. Um, so, But I'm not talking about fetal tissue. I'm talking about basic scientific research Well, we're general. lousy at it. We're <laughs> lousy at talking about science. We're lousy at talking about public health. I mean, we go into panics. We don't have... Um, we, you know, we whether it's a lack of scientific literacy or lack of sanity, I don't know, but we're just not good at it. And I don't know that there's a simple solution. I mean, there are a few, there are a handful of public figures who can speak about it. Francis Collins at NIH can, but also he got some criticism for, you know, that he, he got ahead of things. He's supposed to be studying alternatives, but then he also sort of defended it. So when he tried to speak out, he sort of hit a buzzsaw. I will say Congress has done a little bit of a better job of funding NIH in the last few years because I remember they're funding it, but they're not explaining it to the public. Yeah, yeah. That's right. The that's true. That's true. Yeah, NIH but, gets plenty of money, but I think that we're seeing, as Joanne said, sort of less. There seems to be less and less basic scientific literacy. And out we have there. a congressman coming in in the new house who's anti, you know, questioning the safety of vaccines and saying he's going to stand on the desk of the CB, CDC and demand the secret data on how harmful it is. And he's a doctor. And he's a doctor, but he vaccinated his own kids. So you know, go figure. <laughs> All right. I think that is as much time as we have for today. Uh, that So that is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We will do this again. We are at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. P.W. underscore Cunningham. At Steph Armor One. Oh, Paige, it's so nice to have you and your handle back. <laughs> my handle did not change during maternity leave, unfortunately. That was my question. Yeah. And I'm at Joanne Kennedy. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.